Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. G'day all and welcome to this week's guest, Ian Ugarte. How did I go? Spot on. Good man. How are you, Ian? I'm absolutely awesome and busy. And busy. Uh, hmm. Well, as we record this in two weeks before Christmas in Australia, typically that is just a busy time of year. There's usually <laughs> tying up loose ends and everyone wants to catch up and so on, yeah? Yeah, it's only really like um, I realised a few years ago, I was asking a mate, my best man actually, um, who works in the finance industry as far as stock market um, and futures trading. That's probably the only industry that slows down at Christmas time, I reckon. Everyone else speeds up. I used to I used to jokingly say, as a plumber and builder, I used to jokingly say when someone would ring me two weeks before Christmas and go, oh, could you come and finish my bathroom before Christmas? I go, thank goodness you rang because I've been sitting here all day waiting for someone to fill my book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, I only learned this week that it's in the Northern Hemisphere because it's not sort of like the, in terms of that school year, it's not the same sort of business that we have here. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, I mean, as we're going to get into in the chat, we've both made a concerted effort in our life to to not go with those uh, typical patterns. Mm. So we'll be uh, looking forward to unpacking that. <clears throat> so when I asked you about like what that big moment was for you, I haven't had that question answered in a way that you did. So I'm really looking forward to this. So please do share here. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, the the story, the simply simplistic story of grief is that um, I I realised that what was I thought programmed in my head to make me happy didn't make me happy, and so my grief was around. Wow, I've got here, and I'm actually the unhappiest I've been in my entire life, um, and so that process started. You know, basically, I was young. I, you know, grew up in a household in Sydney. Um, I never complained about my household bringing upbringing. Like it was a middle class, above middle class. I never wanted for anything. My dad and parents just absolutely awesome people, um, and and still alive. Um, thankfully, dad is just actually um, they found asbestos in in between all his organs, um, and it created a cancer. So. Um, they were lucky it was operable, but it's knocked him around. He he's just an amazing strong man, and he um <laughs> he's he said to me, I finished my year twelve exams, my high school certificate on a Thursday, and um we'd already arranged that I was going to go into the plumbing business. So my dad, my brother, my nephew, my brother-in-law, myself, all plumbers, and um 
And my dad didn't want me to be a plumber, but I said, you know, I don't want to go to uni, dad. Um, I ended up going to uni, but I remember him calling up. He said to me on the, on the Thursday afternoon, well done, you finished your exams. And I said, thanks, dad. And I'm expecting, you know, this is September. I'm expecting I've got to January to muck around for a bit. And he goes, you can have tomorrow off. You start on Monday. <laughs> so he yelled up the stairs at 6 a.m. Come on, get ready, go to bed. And I always remember that that point, I'm thinking, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Like this is, I'm, I'm 19 years old, 18 years old. Um, I can't do this for the next 40 or 45 or 50 years by the time I get there, depending on the governments. Um, and I always thought the property was the way that I was going to go. And so I was fortunate enough to be a typical um, first generation Australian from Spanish migrants that they said, you know, Ian, the house across the road is for sale. I put the deposit, you get the loan, you pay, you rent, you live at home. Typical thing. Um, so I'm very thankful for my parents buying that property across the road or deposit. Um, and I then three years later, um, after living off $222 a week, 200 went towards the house. Um, and then the, um, the other $22 is what I got to spend on my first girlfriend, which got no reason, don't, no understanding why she left. Um, so, um, three years later, we sold that house. I paid my parents back the deposit, um, and interest, and that gave me a deposit for my first family home. I worked through that. I ended up, um, you know, starting my own plumbing business, a barge business and multiple outcomes. And I was always searching for that thing that was going to make me rich. So in the last 31 years, I've started 31 businesses. How many of them successful? Not a huge amount of them, but enough to be comfortable in my life, right? Actually 31? Um, yeah, 31, you know. And um, of that, probably 15 of them got off the ground. And in the last 10 years, I've made almost every one of them successful. So... Um, the early, the first 20 were probably learning um, components of being able to know how to run a business. And, you know, I love helping other people start businesses now. Yeah. So, you know, I um, ended up going into TAFE, New South Wales, as one of the youngest um, part-time teachers that ever went in there. I still had dreadlocks when I went into teaching. And yeah. I'd go and help a student in a combined class and the student would say, go away, do your own work. Stop telling me what they're doing. I'm going, sorry, mate, I'm the teacher. I know you're not. <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to go for a full-time job, then became a head teacher and then an assistant director of business for um, Cape New South Wales Sydney Institute, the largest training organisation in the Southern Hemisphere. And I had 22 million um, student contact hours under my control. So wow. For someone in their, um, you know, late 20s, early 30s, that was a big deal. The nearest person to me in that office was 55. And people say, oh, yeah, because you're talented. And I'm not talented at all. I just, like, grab opportunity, whatever there is. But in that time of being in TAFE, I also went through the process of learning. I, I started investing in property early, obviously, um, because of my parents and started to buy stuff and um, and only no new negative gearing and got to myself to a pretty drastic point with my ex-wife where we had seven properties very young um and they were thirty-six thousand dollars negative cash flow and i was on a wage of about ninety-six thousand at the time so effectively oh, wow. you take 36 off that you're down to 60 um you know you take your tax off that get some tax back and maybe we had 40 grand for um ourselves to live off for the year which wasn't enough so i went to a seminar and i saw for the first time and heard for the first time about positive gearing i went wow 
like positive gearing, does that actually exist? You can actually make money out of the cash flow out of your business. That's I, I want to try that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, within the space of 18 months, um, I went off and learned. I um, initiated with my ex-wife. Um, we sold down seven, six of the seven properties um, and went from negative 36 to positive 23, which was a massive turnaround just in a short period of time. 18 months from the time that I decided that I wanted to leave work, um, I was out of work with an income of about $120,000 in property. Wow. Wow. Which was awesome, right? Because, you know, you didn't have to turn up to work. And, you know, so had a little bit of a grief moment there because I sat at home for three months and (laughs) everyone insane because I had nothing to do. So I went out, started another business and started to get into property quite seriously. and I will say that can you do that nowadays? Possibly. We had a lot of things work in our favour for that 18 months. I'd actually set myself three years and we ended up at 18 months, which was great. Um, so I got educated more, went out, started doing development deals, started doing joint ventures um, and, and ended up down the path of being what I call a big block developer. I'm going to buy some sugarcane um, farm and I'm going to put it into council and I'm going to chop it up into the smaller squares that I'm allowed to chop it up into. And then I'm going to put the larger size houses that I can put on those small squares. And I'm going to call that something that the community wants and that I'm helping out community. So that started going along till um, one day we'd moved to Queensland, got out of Sydney as as we possibly could, um, bought this beautiful two-acre waterfront property up here, which we've built a dream home on, which is not such the dream because I'm buying a new one very soon, clearly. It wasn't the dream. Um, And money was rolling in. And I noticed over a period of about three or four months that I became more and more unhappy and I couldn't put my finger on it. And so having all of our family in Sydney, um, our support network, we would go down there often. We'd either fly down or drive down and we'd spend a week or two school holidays, Christmas holidays down there. And I think it was um, about middle of the year, um, maybe it was the September holidays. We were down there, we drove down. And the whole time that I was in Sydney for that two weeks, everyone around me noticed how unhappy I'd been. And I was. And so through, through a lot of sleepless nights during those two weeks, the night before we drove the family home, which is generally like I drive the family home. I like to get up at two o'clock in the morning and drive through those early hours where there's no traffic so you can get the most out of it. That night I tried to sleep and I couldn't. And I remember looking at the bank account details and seeing all the zeros and realizing that I'd been, I was in the unhappiest I'd ever been in my entire life. Wow. And still emotional now, yeah? It's always, um, it always cuts deep because that's that moment where you go, oh shit, I'm rich, but I'm unhappy. The money didn't make me happy. Yeah. And so wow. I had made that decision that morning selfishly to get my family home drive them home and that following night i was going to end my life i was going and i was going to do it in a way that would have left so many open questions that they wouldn't know would have known whether it was a suicide or whether it was 
some criminal action that happened against me. So firstly, let's think about this. I was going to do one of the most selfish things that anyone can do in anyone's life, and that's to end your life because it leaves all those people around you wondering whether they could have done more and there was a sense of responsibility on them. And secondly, I was going to do it in a way that was going to leave open questions even further and no one was ever going to be able to sort it out. No closure. So, yeah, never would they never would they have had the closure. So we drove and... So we, can, I, can I just ask, was that intentional? I think, I think so. I think the intention was to leave many unanswered questions out there. Um, and, and I just clearly wasn't in a great state of mind. Yeah, you right. know, it's embarrassing and it's egotistical to know and think that that's what I was thinking back then, you know. Mm-hmm. So driving home, not much, not a word really said out of my mouth. And my kids, you know, I've got four daughters and they knew, they knew how unhappy I was. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a meeting with my life and business coach on the way back home. And the time it hit where we sort of got to Pottsville, close to New South Wales, Queensland, border, border. We drove into Pottsville. We parked in the car park down near the water. And I just said to the girls, just go and play in the trees, play in the park. We'll just be here for a meeting um, and we'll call you when we're done. So we went through that meeting. Clearly, Michelle, who's just the most amazing woman, um, the, my business life coach, she, she just picked it up and she knew. And being a really brilliant coach, started asking the questions, yeah. And I wasn't going to tell anyone or anything. I was shut down. I was closed. I wouldn't talk to Christine, you know. And she just knew. She yeah. just knew something was really bad. Yeah. Through that conversation, she made me realise that, yeah, yeah, you might be unhappy for the fact that the money didn't make you rich, but you got so much. And she said something to me. She said, where's the girls? I said, they're just out playing in the trees. She says, just look at them. Just take some time and look at them. And, of course, I broke down. Yeah. So... Christine, my ex, and Michelle, they talked me through the process and, you know, helping me out of that hole. No one can ever get you out of that hole. Yeah. But it's great when someone's got the rope at the other end and you can pull yourself out. So we then... So just, yeah, just, just quickly there, it's, it's part of it is knowing that someone is there and someone cares and, and when you're ready that, that you're not as isolated as you think you are, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think the the awareness of mental health and the black dog and, you know, are you okay, that's just, you know, yeah, are you okay is a one day a year day, but it's just opened up so much for people to talk, especially men. Men just do not talk. Yeah. Um, And it's becoming more prevalent that they are, that they're actually seeing the vulnerability is the greatest strength that you can show, you know, Brene Brown type stuff. Yeah, and and I, and I honour you, Ian, for being so open with this because so many will listen to this and get so much value out of it, mate. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been emotional and vulnerable and I don't mind showing it and people think it's a put-on, but it's not. Like, it just comes from somewhere. It's just that men have taught themselves to repress it yeah. and um, 
And I was, came, you know, I was brought up in a European family where you don't show emotion, you know, unless someone's dead, um, you know, you don't show emotion. You just keep on going. So that was something taught to me by, by Michelle as well, you know. And um, so we formulated a place of saying, and the, you know, there's the grief. The grief is, holy crap, I was supposed to be rich and happy, but I'm rich and the most unhappiest I've ever been. And I always say I'm so grateful for the most unhappiest day of my life. Because yeah. if it wasn't for that day, I wouldn't do what I'm doing today. And everyone, it's just cliche, but it's really what we formulated was to go away and say, what was the unhappiness about? Well, when we really got raw about it, Ian was selfish about how he was doing properties and putting it to the market as if he was trying to fix a problem when realistically all he was doing was filling his bank account. Mm, wow. I remember, yeah. I remember reading a quote, rich people have a lot of money and wealthy people have time to spend it. And that's the quote we used to be able to move forward out of that situation. And then we looked at the business and said, how can we actually make this business something that's actually going to benefit other people? And we came up with the second phrase, which was it needs to make sense before it makes dollars. So that is it has to benefit the community first and secondly, it has to be financially viable and it has to do both because otherwise you can sit at home and you can go broke trying try to fix a community problem. You know, yeah, yeah. Good, mate, good mate of mine, Billy Moore, who played for Queensland in Australia in rugby league, said to me, um, you know, the hardest way to help someone that's poor is to be poor yourself. You know, so, um, and not that we help poor people, but what we, what we ended up doing was researching and finding the gap in the marketplace, you know, the upside down marketplace. And, you, you know, you talk about upside down marketplaces, it's really simple. You take, you take Amazon, Netflix, um, you know, Uber, you know, Kodak didn't get the attempt to fix their upside down marketplace. So, you know, we ended up with, with digital cameras and the list goes on, right? Yeah. Um, Airbnb. So what we started to research was what we found through census data um, between 2011 and 2016. And, you know, we were obviously doing this beforehand. So we looked at census data beforehand and then we've updated from 2011 to 2016, 2016 to 2021. In 2011, 2016, out of new households created, so, you know, my family of six that lived here, four daughters and um, wife, is now an ex-wife. So she's created her own household with one of the daughters. Then we've got another daughter that's gone out on her own. Then we've got another one. So the other three have gone out and created. So out of this one household, created four new households, right? So yeah. when you talk about the new households that are getting created in Australia, before 2011, the numbers were like 50-50. 50% of the new households were singles and couples and 50% of the housing were three, four and five bedroom houses, right? So we sort of could say that there was a match between the families and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. By 2011 to 2016, it dropped out to um, 58% of new households were singles and couples and 66% um, of new houses being built and taken to the market were three, four and five bedroom houses, most of them four bedrooms. 2016 to 2021, 69.5% of all households being created are singles and couples and 82% of all new housing is three, four or five bedroom houses. So we've got a mismatch in the marketplace. Yeah. When I first started talking about this um, 13 years ago, um, Australia had 12 million empty bedrooms. We now th have 13 and a half million empty bedrooms every night when we go to bed in Australia, right? Crazy. And we've got a housing problem. We've got a 
affordability problem. And we big, we build the largest houses in the world in Australia. You're so, right. Um, in 2011, the largest houses in the world, 246 square metres with 2.5 people in every house. We're now, um, WA is now 319 square metres with 2.38 people in them. So, you know, you, you look at these trends and you go, something has to give. So we decided to look at ways where we could take one front door, convert it into four, five or six front doors and look at creating an affordability outcome for the people that were living in it. But ironically, the people that owned the property ended up with more cash flow. So something that would normally rent for back in the back in the day, $400 a week, um, we would convert that property. We would find singles and couples to rent sections of the house. Everyone has their own bathroom, their own bedroom, their own sitting area, their own kitchenette. They share the main kitchen and they share the laundry. Each one of those would pay 200 to 250. So effectively, instead of paying $400 a week for a couple to rent a house, they're now renting for 200 to 250 and we include the utilities in the cost. So they're actually not got that extra cost. So they can live, they look after a smaller part of the house. So they don't have to worry about gardens or main areas um, yeah. because that looked after the for them. They um, have um, one third to one half of their normal weekly rent and we include utilities. So they can save money to buy a house within three to five years. We're looking after the middle class, what used to be so, the middle class, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the strata's absorbed, the yeah. utilities are absorbed. So everyone's winning. Correct. So then you take the next step. The landlord was getting four hundred, now getting eight hundred. Take some costs off that. He's probably getting yeah. an extra two hundred dollars. He or she's getting an extra two hundred dollars a week. But the most important part for the community is that we're actually building community, which is lost in Australia. And yes. by doing what we're doing, not only do the first two benefit, but the community benefits because what we just did was we took couples and singles out of family homes put them into one house to save money to buy their own house, but freed up three family homes so that families can actually drop down a notch to a lower rental and actually save money for themselves so they can go and buy their house in three to five years. And so, so that made a monumental difference to my life because all of a sudden I was going from, you know, filling the bank account to actually helping out the community. And the irony was, out of all of that, more zeros. <laughs> yeah. Right. which we reinvested into like, a, you know, I took what we take, what I take what I need now. I don't, I don't need to be the richest man in Babylon anymore. Um, so the, the thing about this was that I went out looking for a ways to do this and I found unused, unused unknown policies around the country, all states. But when I needed to get the specialist and expert that knew about all the rules and regulations, standards, construction code, um, disability standards, discrimination acts, all the things that and re residential tenancy acts and planning acts and all of them working together, I couldn't find one person. I could wow. find individuals, but I couldn't find the one. And by default, I had to get all that information in my head to be able to um, progress forward. I made some mistakes really early on. And thankfully for those mistakes, I could then start to show other people how I did it. Remember, I got a teaching degree now too, because I you know, went through TAFE and, and that were the good old days where TAFE actually paid for you to go to university during work hours, paid for your degree, and also paid you for two extra days of work. <laughs> like it was crazy. Like that. So good. Unbelievable. Um, and so, yeah, we then I then became the expert. I've now advised multiple governments, multiple councils on policy um, and have instigated that. Most recent and proudest is that I've just um, managed to convince the Queensland government um, through the housing summit to take this policy across the whole of Queensland. So we wow. now have 
whole of WA, the whole of South Australia, the whole of Victoria and the whole of Queensland have a policy that allows us to do what I do on a daily basis. Excellent. Now, like we uh, talked about before you came on, you've done a heap of personal development and like a lot of people who have done a lot of personal development and you've probably told your story a lot of times, you've got really good at uh, navigating yourself through this conversation. So, Let's start right at the first personal development for me, right? Because personal development has a very different viewpoint from me today, um, nearly 36 years down the track. My first was basically at the age of 14. And at the age of 14, I was lucky enough, I went to a private boys' school in the eastern suburbs and I was lucky enough, sorry, the cheapest private boarding school in the eastern suburbs before anyone makes any judgments about me. Um, <laughs> it's where the riffraff went to when, when they didn't go to public school and they could afford somewhere else. So um, I was thankfully chosen to be part of a group of students from every class. So it was probably 12 of us, two from every class, that met weekly in the school chapel. And um, we had, and for me, it was like, oh, I've got two hours off every Wednesday. This is awesome, right? And so they put us into um, the, the foyer of the chapel and we all just sat on the ground and we had one of the Christian brothers and a priest um, just talk to us. And the name of the program was Behold the Turtle. And that didn't mean anything to anyone, right? Like it's nothing. And it was a six-week program. And on the sixth week, um, we were talking around the room and it got nothing major happened up until that sixth week for me. I don't think it happened for anyone else either. So we're talking and there was one guy um, said something and and it triggered for me something to say, well, you know, actually what I... I really do get affected by other people and what they think of me and what they say. And while sometimes I might laugh at you know, the joke that's going on, it really affects me in a really negative way. And <laughs> still getting emotional. It really affects me in a real negative way and I feel bad about myself. And one of the other guys who ironically was one of the people that used to say all the some of the awful things to me. And I won't consider it bullying, okay? Well, kids nowadays would, nowadays would but, you know, um, different different demographic, different time. Um, he says, really? Is that how you feel? I go, yeah, I really do feel like that. And I looked at the Christian brother and I looked at the um, priest and I just sort of looked down and I heard the priest say, behold the turtle. This last six weeks, you've all been hiding behind this shell and you just opened up and showed the soft side of who you are. Wow. And that's what that's we're about. So good. Um, I'm drawn to this, Ian, as someone who is clearly highly sensitive and sensory like you are, I'd say not over, not only carrying the weight of what other people, other people's stuff, but because but you are so such an empath that you're carrying other people's load emotionally all through this as well, right? Which is like what's something I could identify with because it's been a like a lifetime thing as well. And that that becomes an extra depth of overwhelm, which and I'm drawn back to that that moment where you're thinking of taking your life. It's like not just your own stuff, but but all of that cascading down on top, right? Yeah. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, you know, you're an empath and it just must be hard. I go, yeah. 
it's so hard because like you, um, I feel everyone's grief and I feel everyone's sorrow and fear. And you, you take that on board because you feel, you know, even if you haven't been through that situation, you know how they feel. But then the opposite side of that is, yeah, I also get to feel your happiness and yeah. all the things that are going well in your life. So I wouldn't give that up for anything. To see someone happy makes me yeah. happy, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and in that process, the interesting part was the reaction to that. The reaction to me being vulnerable in front of my peers made me angry afterwards. I didn't know how to process. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, and I'm a, I was an angry little ant, right? Like I'm I'm only five foot one, but you know, can be angry. Was very angry. Um, and so, you know, a couple of tables and chairs got taken out that afternoon um, by me because right. I. I was from a European upbringing. You don't show that vulnerability. You don't show other people your feelings. And here I was, and I just laid it out on the table, thinking, "Oh my God, these judge, these guys are going to judge me for being the weakest link." So you're and, angry at yourself. Yeah, for showing people soft. Mm. You know, what I thought was soft, but now I understand as the strongest component of what you can show anyone in this world, which was vulnerability. So. Anyway, I, I, you know, the six weeks was up. It just happened to be that that time, and I worked through that. And I remember working with the priest afterwards, and you know, we worked through it, and I was all good. I go, okay, man, I've sort of started my personal development. I'm done. I'm finished. I've got it right. Then I hit the age of um, of nineteen, and my first serious girlfriend leaves me after spending twenty two dollars one night. Even I, I even after only getting twenty two dollars a week for that first year, I still saved eight hundred bucks. I don't know how, right? But um, so I had broken up with her, where she left me, um, and a lot of learning out of that. And I got to a point where um, I was a semi professional football soccer player. Um, so I had a contract where I still you still work during the day, but you know was I was getting paid at the time maybe uh, two hundred bucks a game or something like that. Hmm. Um, more for a win, less for a loss. So um, I started I, I started with this team, um, and I train hard. Like I don't go a half. If I go, I go hard. Yep. And I couldn't get fit. Just couldn't get fit at all. Um, two games into the season, they cut my contract, and wow. so. Um, my parents at the time were seeing a naturopath, so I went in and saw Catherine, and Catherine said, Rodia, it's show me, and I'd never met her before. She says, just let me look in your eyes. She had this telescope-type thing. She put my eye up against it, and she went, oh, okay. She took notes down, and I had long pants on, um, and she said this was a grabbing attention thing. She said to me, you have a lump on your right shin, and your left knee has been giving you trouble, and I didn't limp or anything into the place. And I went, hang on, how did you know? You looked at my eyes and you, how, what? And so she then explained how the iris is a diagnosis tool in neurology to be able to look at different parts of the body and know that are things that are inactive and active. And so she basically said, look, you've got six um, organs that really need some help. You know, you're not dying, but the reason you've got no energy and mainly is your liver. So let's start treating um, that. So she put me onto a, um, a regime of... Um, herbs and um, food uh, and by chance luckily uh, about two months I kept on training for myself two months later I got a call back and I said look I've got some injuries do you want to come back and I said oh yeah I'm in I was fit by that stage and yeah. I played 
the best season of my life. But during wow. that process of clearing, um, she sent me off for colonic irrigation. So um, for those of you who don't know colonic irrigation, basically you've got a, a catheter gets inserted into your butthole. Um, they put gently, they say, put water in, massage your um, large intestine, and then the water gets evacuated out either through another tube or into a hole in the bed. I don't like the hole in the bed method, so I, I thought the tube method was the one I started with. Um, and so I lay on the bed and was talking to my, my first real ever mentor, whose um, nickname is The Pooh Fairy. Um, and she is an out-of-the-box um, um, gay woman who's just so loud, so boisterous, right? And I remember lying there and thinking, and I said, I said to her, you know what, do you ever run courses on how to teach people how to do this? And she said, um, yeah, occasionally I've done one course and I'm thinking about doing another one. And I said, well, I'd love to be involved and I'd love to learn how to do this, right? Yeah. So in there starts my next lot of personal development where um, as a 19-year-old, I started doing natural therapies. Um, I was a plumber and um, then started, and so I did biochemistry. So basically I'm a qualified naturopath other than um, herbs and one other subject, but biochemistry so and shift, shifted your plumbing for the physical world to the, uh, to the physical body. Yeah, and you are, that's right. So, so um, it's, it's one of those things that they ask at a party who, you know, who here can do something no one else can do? And I, I would, I will always say, um, so, so, so the, I'll always say that I can handle um, <laughs> drainage from mouth to treatment system because um, not, only, not only can I do colonic irrigation, but I'm a plumber that can set up the pipe work. And I also have a, um, seven worldwide patents on the treatment of wastewater domestically. So I can treat the wastewater all the way back through to normal water to put back in your body if you wanted to, to right? <laughs> so on the first day, the irony was on the first day of the course that night, I was five minutes late because I, um, again, big ego here, award-winning plumber. Um, so there is a thing called the Steel Olympics and I actually did really well at that. So I had received award um, for um, wastewater treatment and I took that award and took it into my first colonic irrigation class with six other people. I said, look what I just won. Um, so I really know how to treat shit, right? And, um, <laughs> and, and the Pooh Fairy will always say, the Pooh Fairy will always say that where there's only very few people that can officially, officially tell someone that they're full of shit and that's us. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. Finish that last little bit because because uh, I want to dig in a few of these places we've already been. Oh, um, yeah. And, so, and so effectively, what happened there was that um, I started doing this course, and this course was not about putting a physical tube in someone's bum and um, and then getting rid of physical crap. I didn't realize that because I probably wouldn't have done it otherwise. But what it was about was actually working on yourself to get rid of the shit in your life so that you could help other people get rid of shit in your life. Because colonic irrigation is a turning point or a crossroads generally for someone in their life. We would see people come in and they would have a monumental life decision to make. And, at the, and when they come in, the clarity, so 6% of the absorption into your bloodstream comes out of your large intestine. So when you've got shit running through your body, up into your brain, you're going to think cloudy, you're not going to make good decisions and you're not going to be able to move forward in life. Yeah. So we would see people sort of just wander up the driveway, come in, get a treatment and then skip 
out of the place, literally. Yeah. And and so that whole process was that we needed to release ourselves. So here we were thinking that it was a physical thing, but really what the Pooh Fairy Annette was doing for me was actually working me through a process of my personal development to get me to a point where I was a much better person. And the story I'll, I'll finish this part off with before we move on is she has a patient card for every patient that comes in here into the, into the clinic. And, um, and she, by the way, still my mentor, um, ring her quite a lot. And there's no one that gives you more honesty than her. So in the cards, she says, okay, well, here's all the acronyms I use. So if someone picks up the card that actually don't know what I'm saying, like most people would do in, in different scenarios. So I pull my car out and I look at it and I'm dismayed and look across at her and I say, you've got FIH here. And I said, what's that about? And she goes, well, you were. FIH is fucked in head. So when I first turned up, she just saw this out of, kilter out of spiritual alignment um young kid that wasn't quite there yet and she told me afterwards that she was very hesitant to accept me into the course because she didn't know how i was going to go about it she will tell you now that and that i am one of the people that she knows very few of them that i may not see it i can't see it you know, you could talk it over and over it, but the brick has to hit me in the face. And when the brick hits me, it's bang, done. Decision made, changed, let's move on, right? Yep. Um, and that's what happened in that course. And again, at the end of that course, I don't need any more personal development. I've done it all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we could be here for hours because <laughs> I, I can see how you uh, – made so much happen in your younger years because you are 100 miles an hour, which is awesome. Yep. So where to start? I want to go back to that that moment, but just some things that have really showed up now. And when you were talking about um, that bit about, I don't know if you said angry itself, but that's what I've written down here. But yep. it's like, oh, and you mentioned liver. Yeah. And, and liver, I don't know, you've obviously done this part of the study of organs is where we hold the anger, right? Sure. And also when you were talking about like working with people, I just like felt this wave of tiredness and it's like, are you aware of how much when you get knocked off kilter physically or otherwise, how much of that is actually other people's junk still having a – an impact yeah and um you know there's a there's we we could go quite deep and spiritual um and i could take you places where some of the viewers are going god these guys are fucking nutbag but um, no, no, no. Go, go wherever you're drawn to go because so, people who listen so, to this are, are open to uh yeah. going down those rabbit holes you know ultimately you look at your life and you look at body therapy and how that all works in and you know i've got a wonderful wonderful um amazing man that I know who's nearly 80 and does body work better than anyone else I know. And the reason behind that is that he's worked through and taken it to the next level, I believe, um, of Heal Yourself by Louise L. Hayes, where um, 100% of all emotion is related to the physical ailments that you're having. Generally, yeah. legs down is going to be physical, but from, from waist up, there's going to be something going on in your life. 
And um, like I might go into him and say, look, my, my knee is killing me. And he'll come up and he'll adjust my shoulder. But the way he'll do it is um, he'll talk me through the process of something in my life as if he's a fly on the wall and has heard the conversation. And so you talk through that process, you think about it, he does the adjustment and you're back and running, right? At times, and he doesn't touch your knee, which is annoying because most people want their knee touched, right? Invalidation, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so um, I've had times with him where he hasn't even needed to touch me and I've felt my body move. And it's and I'm not a really sensitive person, right? So I'm not it's not as if I could feel every jolt in my body. Um, so yeah, I mean liver and all the meridians on the liver are based around anger and how you hold on to that anger. And um and the clearing of the colon. So the colon is the sewer of your body. And let's say that your sewer connection's in the basement of a house and it's blocked, what ends up happening is the basement feels full of shit. And you go, that's no problem. I'm upstairs, I'm flushing toilets. But the waft of the, of the smell of this basement makes its way up through the house. And every time you flush the toilet, it's going to start backing up further and further and further. So people yeah. that start regurgitating is actually a blockage right down at the bottom end that's coming and backing up. You clear that, That what then happens is that every other in the body, body in the organ goes, whew, I've got some room to move, and they dump and flush too. And one of the stories I can tell you about is um, my ex-wife, Christine, while I was doing the course, we were um, on the side painting houses at nighttime to make some get some extra money to, to be able to buy our new house. And on this one occasion, they wanted oil-based paint. And Christine was super sensitive, right? We painted that night. She was spewing up, shitting up everything that she could from the chemicals. And I got her on the table and um, and 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 did a colonic on her. And I've never seen anything like it again. Green fluoro coming out the tubes. I've seen Whoa. pinks. Been pinks and oranges and yellows and different colors like that, but this was fluoro green. And so I went back to Annette, and so she got up off the table and went to work. So it was like six o'clock in the morning. She, like she was dying for the whole night, and she got up and just trotted off to work quite happily. <laughs> I spoke to the blue fairy about it, and she says, "Yeah, that was a gallbladder just dropped all the gunk because it was too much of a load on her body to be able to handle it." Um, and so, so when it comes to healing the body. I'm a hundred percent believer. If you don't have Louise L. Hayes' book, you can Google it as well. If you've ever got a neck issue, um, know that your neck issue is related to the fact that you can't look at other people's um, side of the of the equation, and that um, you're, you're not willing to turn around and look at it. So that's why your neck starts to go thrown out. And you can do affirmations to start thinking about that, and you'd be surprised how quickly your neck will get resolved without seeing a chiropractor, right? But it's always good to go and do that. So for me, it's about saying, okay, what's the ailment? What's the fix? Where's the blind spot that I've got in my life right now to actually fix and move forward to to a, a bigger level? Um, and, you know, I, I've done some out there stuff. I've, um, you know, up until the age of 35, maybe never smoked, didn't drink until I was 19. I was only really for a six month space there when my ex-girlfriend left <laughs> in the fucked in head stage. Um, <laughs> and and um, really hadn't touched and hadn't touched any drugs, including hardly any pharmaceutical. At the age of 35, um, I, the marriage started to fall apart about that time. I went deeply into psychedelics um, as a point of therapy of who I was. My ego is such a strong ego that I, I needed to do psychedelics to be able to push that out of the way and get the real story into my unconscious mind so that I could actually see things as they were without the ego trying to protect me 
because ultimately ego is just your protection mechanisms to say you think in this way and if you change the way you think then i as an ego will get destroyed so i need to come up with ways to be able to counter affect the fact that you want to change so so go on oh it's rare that I get to 43 minutes and I've barely got a word in. And <laughs> what I'm drawn to, if you if you are okay with me being completely blunt, is that yep. there's part of, uh, part of that still playing out now, right? Because generally I have the conversation, I unpack some of these moments at a bit deeper, um, mm. but we've moved on to the next one, the next one, the next one. And uh, yeah, go on. And we can go as deep as you want in any of those occasions. But, yeah, but, and and I'm know. not saying I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that yeah. these these things are also there. They still play out. But again, it's why you're so good at identifying for other people, right? Because sure. that like it's the same patterns that that I run that I'm challenged with. I'm getting better at dealing with them every day, but that allows mm-hmm. us space to help other people, right? Sure. Yeah. Go on. I was going to say so. Oh, no, actually, you, you finish what you were going to say there and then I'll come back. I was going to say lots. Um, I mean, if we talk about psychedelics, um, get onto Netflix, get onto wherever you can and watch whatever you can about it. Because the view of psychedelics is that it's an illegal, they're illegal drugs that will, um, you know, create an outcome in your life that's going to be negative and that you'll be addicted to it. You cannot be addicted to a drug that makes you perch or shit or makes you feel awful or gives you a negative experience during the process to come from positive outcome. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to psychedelics, I'm not, I'm not professing that anyone should do it. I'm simply giving you my experience. Yeah. Um, and I looked deeply into it before I started looking at doing what I've done. And the basis of psychedelics is, you know, different different um, psychedelics for different people reacts in different ways. There's no dosage mechanism. There's like, I literally have to take what they call a hero's dose every time to get any, to get the ego out of the way. And a hero's dose is like something you, what, what a standard person would do to be able to create a life altering change in their life. But I just need that to knock it out of the way. Right. So God forbid if I want to do a hero's dose. Right. Um, But you know, the treatment of PTSD, um, the treatment of anxiety, um, you know, addiction, like it lists go on. And when you look at the history and you, you know, start watching those documentaries, you'll see that um, what really came down to psychedelics being knocked off the market was that um, the Americans during Vietnam um, were getting soldiers who were going out and doing psychedelics and seeing the world the way it really was. And that wasn't in alignment with killing vet comms. Mm-hmm. And that meant they were going AWOL or not doing what they were supposed to do. And so very quickly, um, and that's the basic, but, you know, you can look at deeper at other reasons as well. But that's what happened. They made them illegal overnight. And, you know, we're now, and pharmaceutical companies, they can't take a patent against a natural um, process or drug, mm-hmm. um, which means they can't make any money out of it. And it's extremely effective in treating different things in life. For me, what it did was it gave me the realization that that working 20 hours a day like I had done for 20 years, regardless of whether it was making me unhappy or happy, is probably not the way to go. 
that the drive to continue doing what I did on a daily basis to fix a community problem or whatever can be done in different ways. And you don't have to be at a high level spike all the time um, to be able to achieve that. But more importantly, how can you just settle down a little bit? How can you just be a little bit more calm? Um, how can you start listening to other people? And the problem with psychedelics is that you don't notice the change. It's people making note of your change. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's two months. Sometimes it's a year down the track where you get someone comment to you and you go, oh, okay, I hadn't really noticed that. Or I hadn't noticed that it changed for me. Now, there are some things in my life that I continuously go in, you know, talk about psychedelic set and setting, right? Um, it's got to be set up correctly and the place that you're in needs to be supported. So, you know, if you're going to go do psychedelics on your own and chew on mushies for a little while and see what happens, I think you're making a mistake. You know, go to people that really understand and know um, what's going on. And so um, because if you do have a bad experience, they're trained to be able to walk you through that bad experience because you're not zapped out to the world. You know, you might different different psychedelics, different feelings, different outcomes, but effectively they're there to support you and help you through that process of thinking because you know, it's going to bring up stuff for you, mostly good stuff. My, mm. my iboga ceremony, um, you don't often do iboga more than once, and I think I end up doing it again. But iboga is, you know, you need to go get your heart tested and you make sure that everything's right. Um, mm. And I've, I was sick, you know, I felt sick, like wavy and bit for about a week and a half afterwards. But that experience was the most profound experience of my entire life. It took me to places that made so much sense, um, including taking myself back to a three-year-old and looking at myself um, as if I was taking a photo and seeing all of my surroundings so clear. And what it did for me was it made me realise even more, significantly more, how incredibly um, powerful our minds are and how every day on a daily basis, even more now do I understand that the six-year-old is driving everything you do. Yeah. And yeah. It's crazy. It's, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? And uh, just back to the, uh, the psychedelics and anything like that, it's the same as other parts of our life. We're going to get the best results when we have structure. And we have support and guidance from experts in the different area. Yep. Now, I just want to bridge that back to your your, your level of expertise around the these communities that you're setting up. Yep. Generally, when we find that thing that's fulfilling, it's it's filling a gap that we didn't have. So you talked about creating houses now where you've got your own space, your own bathroom, all those sorts of things. When when you were growing up as a uh, as a young fella, as you said, first generation, were they all things that were a challenge? Like were, was was the early days in? No, no, no hard luck story for me. I lived not on hard luck, but it, it's like what what was there? Was there a space or was there something that that wasn't there? So what? I, my point is this, and and I'm having to bring this back to my memory because it was about half an hour ago. Sure, but one of the great gifts that the uh, immigrant families, particularly from Europe around this, mm. this context around community, it's, it's what they brought to Australia. 
And yep. as you said, that that sense of community is being eroded. And yeah, why would so, we go away from something that is such a positive impact for you individually, yeah. as a family, and for a greater community? And I love how you're yeah. bringing that back. I think it, uh, and so the <laughs> in Vita is, um, you know, we're we're bringing back genuine community connection, one yeah. house at a time, and. And the community I grew up in is not that um, that you know you get multi generational families living together in Europe and and in Asia. Um, it was more that the story that I tell was that we had a four hundred and twenty square meter three story built home. Um, sorry, it was four stories with a garage uh, up here on the Sunshine Coast. It was a house that um, we first lived in when we came up here, and in that house. I hardly saw the kids. You know, they were in their rooms or, you know, we'd have dinner and get stuff together. But if you wanted to see the kids, they were somewhere in this four-storey house. Yeah. Um, so we ended up buying this property after that one and it had a two-bedroom, 85-square-metre project home on it. And with four daughters, that meant that, you know, the eldest um, took one bedroom on her own and then the other three slept out in the lounge room and Christine and I, uh, my ex-wife, lived obviously slept in in the other bedroom and what i noticed was that by living in the smaller house the outcome was we interacted more as a family because there was nowhere else to go and if they wanted to go anywhere outside the outside the house meant they could play out there rather than being on their you know tech where and and importantly if they were on their tech i was looking over their shoulder because they had nowhere else to be right (laughs) but now now we've got this family thing going back on we're safer because the girls are, are on tech in front of us and they're actually getting out more because, you know, and we only had one toilet in the house. So I had the ability to be able to put a second toilet in as a plumber. It would have taken me two hours, right? But I decided to prolong that for a little bit of time because by default, without even talking about it, our family ended up with a timetable of showering and using the toilet. So that happened. And then I went, you know what? I actually feel like my six-year-old. I feel like I'm back in my little house in George Street in Mas- in East Lakes in Sydney, right? And, yeah. and it started making me think a little bit more about community because if we've lost the family unit in these large houses, we've actually lost community before we even got out the front door. Oh, so and, good. And so... My, I, I went back to and started thinking about the street I grew up in, you know. Um, next door, we had my Auntie Carmel in an asbestos-clad home, and yeah. um, she was my Auntie Carmel. We lived in a speckled, rendered brown and white house like every wog did with bars on the windows, and I think the bars were there to keep me in, not, um, <laughs> not keep any people out. And... And across the road was Monica um, and Nick, the Germans, who had two girls. Um, next to them was the house that I ended up buying. Down the road was um, Monica's parents. So she grew up in that street and bought in that street. Then there was the Greek guy next door, and there was the Greek next to us, you know, um, that was um, uh, Nick and Angela. Sorry, um, Tasha and Angelo, who had two sons, Nick and the other one, um, Peter, and... You know, this was a, a community. Everyone talked to each other. Everyone interlinked with each other. And I look back at that and I look at my Auntie Carmel. So through circumstances in my mother's life, um, I would have to get up 
to get to school without her assistance, right? But my Aunty Karma would make sure I was up, dressed, fed, and then she'd get me off to school. And that Aunty Karma, it wasn't until about the age of 11 that I, I remember looking at her and the penny dropped and I went, hey, hang on, that's not actually my auntie. Like, <laughs> she's, like all I had to do was look at this colour of my skin versus her and I would have worked it out, right? Yeah. And I remember actually again sort of pushing away from the fact, well, she's not my auntie. I'm not going to call her auntie anymore. But my dad pulled me in the line probably after the second time where I said Carmel, <laughs> clicked me across the ear. Um, <laughs> well, actually, there's a story about that one too. But um, so then so then I, I realised that that's where the community family feel came from, that we'd lost it in Australia. There were still parcels of it. And, you know, we went at, I actually went off and invested in Devonport quite heavily because – um, it was the place that I still saw community that was active in there. Now, my auntie Carmel, she died in 2014, 2015, and, and that was an emotional time for me because I wrote a letter to um, Bernadette, her eldest um, daughter, and I, and I said to Bernadette, um, you know, such an impact in my life because your mother um, was closer to me than any of my blood aunties, and that's because of the community we had in that street and in many Love streets it. in Australia. Time. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely awesome that I was able to not only find something different in the business, but also could align the community aspect of it back to my childhood. So good. Um, so of all the conversation, that's the bit that lit you up the most, right? So, so what I, yeah. what I love about this platform is to, is to shine a light on the elements of, yes, you're an expert for all these reasons, but this is why you're the expert because it's so undeniably linked to your past and to your heart and like the you know the goosebumps I'm getting at the moment is like, th this is how we find that work that actually that actually means something. So yeah. if you go back full circle to to you know you were talking about making the money but not actually feeling the happiness whereas now you've got something that's perfectly aligned to who you are your journey your family your family who were community family mate beautiful yeah and you know i'm at a crossroads again um i've i've created a really beautiful business um and i've got some incredible people that work alongside me my the talent in my team are just amazing um and you know um COVID hit, that sort of changed everything for everyone. And I, I, you know, I divorced. Um, well, it was through COVID that being, I, I spent 265 days um, the year before COVID on stage speaking somewhere around the country. So effectively only home for 100 days of the, two, of the 365. And I honestly believe our marriage prolonged because of the fact that I was never home. And, You're right. um, and part of the development of who I was, especially the psychedelics, was there was times where I got home and I was home for, and our parenting styles were very different. We could never align our parenting styles. You know, I, I, I was deeply in love with Christine multiple times during our relationship and there was five times where we basically called it quits and in the end we did. Um, but the parenting styles were very different. And so that effectively, me being home during COVID is effectively what said, yeah, this is not working. Um, and... You know, when you've got 37 different um, entities that own properties, it's not an easy thing to split. So that was probably part of the reason that we didn't do it earlier. Yeah. Um, but during that process, it, it started to do some deep soul searching about 
who I am, what I want to be, where I want to get to, and what's my what's a new life partner look like? And so um, I wrote down a list of 30 things, you know, attract, attract those things around you that you want, write it down, make it physical. Um, and even if you don't look at it again, it's actually imprinted because of the power of the mind in your yes. unconscious mind. So anyway, someone um, someone I'd met um, about four years earlier, we our families had dinner together. She messaged me out of the blue. She's from New Zealand and she said, look, I'm, I'm, I've split my husband. I'm looking at investing and I know that you do invest because we spoke about it at the time. Can you give me a hand and just talk me through some stuff? I said, sure, no worries. I'd split with Christine. Things developed. I said, I'll come over for a cup of coffee. So I went, I flew myself to New Zealand on the whim of just going for a date, right? Love. love. Yeah. Yeah, like with love, right? Because I, I, I did, I, you know, I, I've done um, intensive um, intensive with David Data. So if you don't know David Data, is you know, masculine, feminine energy. And it's certainly one of the most uncomfortable things I've done in my life, doing those um, intensives with him because you're taking yourself to places where uh, beyond vulnerable um, for long. And, and that connection of masculine, feminine, what the masculine should be doing, what the feminine should be doing, not man or woman, masculine, feminine. Yep. Anyway, um, so I went across, I had this cup of coffee. Um, I'd booked to be there for seven days. Some closures happened because of COVID, so I took it out to 10 days. I flew back to Australia for two, madly in love with this woman, um, and flew back by surprise. And when I flew back, they closed the borders. So I got stuck in New Zealand with Holly. With Holly, well, damn! If it hadn't worked out, it would have been damn. And if it and it worked out, right? Yeah, okay. So we had a, a four-month intensive of um, of being involved with each other's lives at a depth at stage four lockdown. And she's a nurse at the time; she was a nurse. Um, to get to the point where I then made some lifestyle choices and decisions that changed everything around me. The drive changed, the ability to to push changed, and uh, we had a meeting recently, and I and I'm now back into the business. I sort of left the business to be able to be run for itself, and sort of got dragged back in. And I said to my team the other day, everyone in my team has been with me for a long time, either as a student or. Um, as friends that have developed and we get we talk about it here that you get sucked into the vortex you come over just to help us with one part of the business and then all of a sudden you're there full-time and beyond full-time right Um, and I said to them you know what I feel like I've done so much for you all because I have I've helped them invest in property gets in you know establish themselves end up with their dream homes and whatever Um, only to find you're still there I suppose I'll keep talking. Um, only to find that they're at a place where, um, you know, they're helping me out because I'm no longer in the business. So, sorry, don't know what happened there. Uh, well, we talked about before we jumped on about uh, the right. physical uh, energy levels of people at the moment and also the infrastructure. And I was mentioning the the blackout we'd had and the uh, dropout, and it was just a complete dropout. Yeah. So. Um, so I, think I, thought, I, was, I thought you'd be uh, well equipped to keep talking, so thank you. Yeah, I did sort of stop and I started. So, but effectively, where 
we've got the point in the business where I've handed out, and not that I tally favors, but I always knew that I always helped everyone around me. And yep. um, and in the recent 18 months, uh, I've felt like I've used up my favors, that this team of mine have supported everything I've done in the way that I've done it. And we had that meeting when I flew back to New Zealand for that surprise visit back to Holly after being away from two days. I was just so love struck, still am, yep. um, that we had a meeting in this room and um, we've got staff in LA and Sydney and all over the place. And um, and my marketing head of marketing said to me, Ian, you just need to be um, Richard Branson. You concentrate on flying to the moon. Just let us do the operations on the ground. Go and just follow what your heart says. Nice. And, you know, it was so warming and beautiful to have that and that support. Yeah. And what it's meant for me is that I'm now at my crossroads because for me, the property stuff is done. It's doing its thing. I'm making changes. You know, the the 12, 13 years that we've been doing this is now making a difference um, financially and affordability-wise, even though the housing market's getting worse, we're doing better for those people. But we're now at that crossroads where Holly and I are in this business together and we're saying, you know, for me, if, if you could pop me on a stage and Holly was next to me or in the crowd and I could travel with her and I could just talk to people about life, I think that's where, that's where I'd be, you know, that's where my happiness comes from. My happiness is those moments. I'm a teacher. That's my drive, right? And... I think that the best way to describe it was I was listening to an ABC, um, so the conversation hour with Richard Feidler, and they were interviewing a principal of a school that had been sexually assaulted when he was a kid and whatever. And I'm 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 out in the middle of um, Queensland with a mate of mine who's now 85 years old, helping me paint this old church that we'd bought. You know, it was just that's some time out time to go and paint, and we're sitting on a trestle painting, and ABC's playing. And this principal said, you know, for me, the reason I love teaching is that moment in time where it doesn't matter how many times that personal student in front of you has heard what they just heard, but the way that you say it, the circumstances in their life, and everything comes into alignment on that day where you look them in the eyes and you see the penny drop moment and they go, ah, I get it. And that moment ticks my box. And I'm sitting on this trestle painting with Ed and I broke down inconsolably crying because he put in words what I'd been trying to get out of my life and out of my mouth for so long. So for me, it's those moments in time where you sit with someone and because you said something in one way or another that they'd heard a thousand times before, they finally get it, it ticks your box. Now, it, yeah. it's selfish, right? It's selfish. But we yeah. wouldn't go out helping and doing other things uh, on the basis of only helping others because there would be no fulfillment. Otherwise, you'd just be another rich person, right, and unhappy. 100%. It's all about the fulfillment and joy that we get of helping people. And absolutely, it is a selfish activity. But what? Are, what? Are, if that's not the best selfish activity to get so much value out of helping people, I don't know what is. So. 
my question, and I'm glad you've kind of taken us this direction anyway, which you've done a great job, like I said, of, of leading the conversation where I wanted, well, I was thinking it would go anyway. So I'll say this, it's really interesting to me that from, I get a full physical ride of people's emotions through this. The digestive stuff that I've had going on, I've had to mute myself a few times. <laughs> <laughs> from your story is not surprising, the moments of nausea, uh, the up and down. And again, it's like it just says everything that you've talked about is is that's your story. So my why I went there is like, okay, and you kind of said that you're at that crossroads because I was going to ask. I'm like, okay, you've done all these amazing things. What is the gap that you now see, not in the real estate marketplace or property or anything, but what is the gap that you see in the world that you know you can fill? I think um, the position of connection of human beings in general, but more precise and more detailed around um, how partners interact with each other. So whether that be male, male, female, 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 male, there's an understanding in in our lives that we just conduct ourselves like we have in the past and that's how your relationship should be moving forward. But ultimately, if I put in its simplest terms, the term that you know, the terms of actually looking at it from a perspective of David Data, who's devoted his entire life to the physical and emotional energy between masculine and feminine, to the point where you can just keep it as simplistic as it is. When your feminine partner comes to you and wants to tell you about their problems, they don't want it fixed. They just no. want you to listen, right? Yeah. Yeah. When the masculine um the masculine's job is to take the feminine to God. It's to get that person in their feminine energy to a point that they've never reached before. And then when they get there, it's not enough. So the challenge is for the masculine to continue to evolve as a person to bring her to the point. And it's completely selfless, including, you know, when you look at, when you look at um, men, I'm going to say, in general, they just want to fuck, blow a load and get out. And that is not serving your feminine woman. Like it's the not the way to go. So in the position of practicing the um, intimacy of yoga, it means being able to learn how to, and I haven't mastered this, control the recirculation of your ejaculation because as soon as you let go of ejaculation, that's your energy gone. You've, you're, you can't operate above that level. Um, and just as I say that, Holly walks in the room. So um, <laughs> you, you, you then go to the point of saying, okay, well, let's talk about connection, which doesn't involve sexual energy, but simply the connection of people between heart and souls and how we can work that. On the flip side of that, the, this would be done alongside Holly. And we've been speaking a little bit um, recently about this. Holly's background um, in her first marriage wasn't, um, a great background from a perspective of um, the DV situation, what happened in there. And out of the rule of seven types of DV, she basically hit every one of them. Mm. But her ability, she's automatically attracted the people around her that are in difficult situations, females mostly, um, to get out of their relationships and asking her, what's my step? And so together, I think, in a perfect world where the void that we can fill is to get couples in their current state to enjoy their lives better and be well connected and more connected and Love know it. that it's beyond physical. 
Yeah. But more importantly, I think from Holly's perspective, it's like how do I how do I know help people navigate their process that if it's not going to work, then let's take it that way. I honestly left the David 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 Data um, intensives at a place thinking that there's no people on this earth that can't get on. There is a way to be able to teach people how to be able to learn each other's energies, work with each other, and just put things to the side. It doesn't change my asshole of a neighbour though. <laughs> so um, you know, it's sort of at that point where I think for me it's evolving into something that um, may not be a monetary focus, um, but probably closer um, to, to creating the focus around people and energy. I think. I love how the uh, I don't know where that that chime came from. May not have a monetary focus. Bing. It's like, but yes, it will make money anyway. <laughs> that, was, that was God chiming in. I think. <laughs> um, with uh, with any situation like that, like you talked about the neighbour, there has to be a willingness from both parties to to be able to have that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there is, but there's an energy about that too. So in any of property course. that we buy for our clients or ourselves, we actually get an energy healing done on it. And it started with a woman called Maggie Landman, and that's her she was born as Maggie Maggie Landman. That's her that's her surname. She <laughs> came out at the age of about 40 um, on a holiday after a dream, opened the door of her caravan and could see ley lines, positive lines, negative lines as a psychic medium i suppose you would call it so yeah. she started doing land healings and you know um she she doesn't have to go there she just needs a plan she can see the negative ley lines and positive draws them she then says go and get this crystal that crystal that crystal place it on the map or physically go and put it on the block in these spots and interestingly enough he was being the greatest asshole on earth he's we've just had two one in 100 storm events in queensland this earlier this year right yeah i He's really upset with me because his um, backyard is soggy. <laughs> I figure, right? So um, <laughs> as a plumber, I can tell you it's not because of me, right? So um, so he has been at me, hammer and tong. And for anyone that's listening who's got a bad neighbour, go and get some crystals, um, some um, quartz, crystal quartz, with a spear on it, the point, and you'll you'll find them at a crystal shop. And yeah. they don't have to be don't have to be big. It can be small. Every two meters, just put a screwdriver in the ground and drop it with the point up all the way along down that boundary. And you watch the change of the people on the other side of that boundary. It's incredible, right? So <laughs> this guy was being an asshole, and I said, "Oh fuck you, you motherfucker!" So um, <laughs> as a mozzie flies around my head, just pretending to be him. Um, I went and grabbed this massive crystal quartz, the biggest one that I've ever owned, right? It was it was bigger than your fist and as long as my um, arm, right? And I dug a hole and I put that fucker pointing upwards. And <laughs> within two days, he sent me a message and said, man, I just want you to know, you're one of the best neighbours I've ever had. <laughs> what the fuck? How good. How good. I've been training for so long. But anyway, um, but yeah. Um, no, like, we should have yeah, yeah, we shouldn't uh, just gloss over that because, again, people listening to to this podcast will have dabbled in in the esoteric and and be certainly open to it. And that whole energy thing, I had that same experience. So when we were selling one of our properties, my coach was saying to me, oh, "Here's what you're going to do. You're going to you're going to you don't have to go there. You clear the energy. You're going to make it presentable for the ideal client, um, and you're going to set you're going to." 
receiver price, which which you're going to get. Now, the the uh, the agent wanted us to take before auction at this amount. Uh, the amount that came through was forty to fifty grand more than that. Uh, we didn't get an offer. It went to auction, and of course, the agent was blown away at the price, which is three grand above what I was given through that guidance. And it's like you can choose to believe that this is mumbo jumbo, or you can choose to be open and to try it out and see what you get because the results speak for themselves. Yeah, and being affirmative on your thoughts and process is important. You know, people say, oh, you're so – say other people, oh, you're a negative person, that's why your life is negative. Well, yeah, possibly. Um, I also have a viewpoint to say that, you know, people that just say think positive and your life will change, that's a crock of shit, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there are days in my life where I, I wake up and through no – you know, I've suffered from what I would presume is anxiety. I've never had it um, looked at in any other way, but I presume is anxiety since the age of 14, right? Um, and interestingly enough, when I was vulnerable is when it started. So, so can just hide. I'll let you keep going, but what I felt just before you said that was excitement. So I'd yeah. say that probably some of the anxiety is actually a whole bunch of excitement, which from having spoken to you now for 75 minutes yeah. would make sense. Keep going. Yeah. So sometimes, some days, I, some nights, some days, I wake up and I'm just sad. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you what's happened. I can't tell you whether there's a chemical imbalance or, you know, whether there's a thought process going on because it's not front of mind. And, you know, I had a mentor who, who taught me what I didn't want to be. And at the time, I was really, really quite fragile. And she said, just think positive. Think positive things. And, and I, wanted to, to, I wanted to punch her in the face, yeah. Just going, do you realise, have you got any empathy of how I'm feeling right now? Like, you know, don't talk me positive, you know, just go, the greatest sympathy on earth she gave me. It's <laughs> just like, be, a, be an empath. I don't just, we, we're, Holly and I are speaking about this at the moment. We're going for custody of her younger two children. And the empathy, um, people's emotional intelligence is so much more important than their physical intelligence, you know. You, you look at it and say, you know what, um, anyone that has emotional intelligence will understand and be able to sit on the fence and go, hang on, what I just said there was wrong or what they just said could have been done be better or, hey, together we could come up with an outcome that's based on this. If, some, if you're on one side and you've got some emotional intelligence and I don't, you proclaim to be a professor in emotional intelligence, but the other side doesn't. It's just so difficult. And I suppose going back to your question, if you if I could do if what I think the world is lacking is in part emotional intelligence. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You said before sometimes you feel sad and you don't know why. So mm. this has been my learning. So you talked about being an angry ant. That that was me too, right? It was suppressed anger, a lifetime of suppressed anger, and that was my addiction. Now, of course, I dabbled in a few other addictions as well over time, but the main overriding one was the, uh, was the anger. When we suppress anger and we push it down, it turns into something else in our body and sadness, anxiety, depression, other different things. It's not sadness at all. So we've got this epidemic of of these other, in inverted commas, diseases, mm -hmm. which is 
again, from everything I've learned in my experience and everyone I've taken through this, it's just suppressed anger. Low-level anger, which is those things that we just tolerate, and, and the big stuff, we're told that's not okay. You can't feel revenge. You can't feel resentment. You can't feel rage. No, actually, they're, they're just things that you do feel, and that's okay. Yep. Big believer. Treat the colon, treat the liver, and that will make a huge difference in your life. You know, um, and and we're so easily labelling things nowadays. You know, we yeah. had one of the um, Keeney, our daughter here, had some friends over, and you know, he's been labelled as ADHD. He's not ADHD. So where in the world that kid's like? He's a normal kid that just loves doing extra stuff and is quite heightened by it. Like, you know, he's he, an innovator. He, yeah, and you know, there's other people that go, "Oh, yeah, I'm ADHD, but I've labelled it as a positive. It makes me more proactive, and I can actually function higher than anyone else." What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> um, I'm not going to mention any names, but it's a public person that says that all the time. I go, "Fucking hell!" But you know, like I said it before, I presume it's anxiety. I've never had it looked at, and I, that's what I presume it is. But I don't need to label it. It's just so I can explain how I feel, and. You know, I just think that so many, um, especially this current generation, remembering that Simon Sinek will always say that the generation before was always a bad generation for every generation, Um, all the way back to, you know, ape. Um, But really, my view and opinion of this generation is that, you know, they're oversensitive to a point where, you know, political correctness, it's crazy. Like, Mm -hmm. I my, you have to refer to me as a pronoun of they or them. Like, firstly, let's just start with English and go, <laughs> grammatically, it can't be correct, right? You can't yeah. be a them if there's only a one, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, but I'm part of a group, so I'm a them. I'm going, yeah, but you're you. You can't call you a them. <laughs> anyway, it just reminds me of something my dad used to say to me in Spanish all the time, and it's one of those jokes that does translate. And he used to say to me, you know, there was a knock on the door the other day, and I asked who it was, and he said me, and I opened the door, and it was him. And then there was another knock at the door, and I um, asked who it was, and they said us, and I opened the door, and it was them. <laughs> so, you know, you think about pronouns, and you go, where have we got to? Where have we got to where, where we've sort of tipped the other way a bit? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be um, cha- changing. You can do and be whoever you want. But to pronounce that you must, you know, I love Jordan Peterson. He's just so upfront about it, you know, hmm. he, and, and I love the work that he does. He's really quite a unique, interesting character, which ironically has gone into the space that I want to go into which is marriage and wife and life. And as you were saying that, that's exactly where I was drawn to too because he talks about he goes and has these talks where the majority of the crowd are men and he said grown men are brought to tears because suddenly they have a safe space to feel understood. Mm. And like there's been this like white, white men 45 plus have been ostracised for the only reason that they don't even know what they're supposed to be anymore. They've been told what they can't be. They've been yep. told all these different things that it's like, oh, I don't want to say anything in case I upset someone. And it's like that's we've just gone too far the other way. Like you said, the oversensitivity and people worried about offending someone. Jordan Peterson talked about this. He goes, usually people who have these causes and they're pushing it out there, it's because they haven't got their own shit in order. So focus on yourself and then that's where you'll create the best change. 
And I mean, there's things that I used to say on stage where there's just no way I could say it. And I'd never watched American Pie until the other night. Holly said, what? You've never seen American Pie? And we watched and I went, oh, man, that nowadays just wouldn't go down well, <laughs> well at all. It's, it's one of many movies that, uh, that wouldn't. <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, I think I, I, I really do think that there's that phase of saying how do people get on with each other, how do actually, you know, having started so many businesses with an ex-wife and now in our current two businesses with um, Holly, I really do think that there's a space for someone to be able to, assist people in relationships in business um, to be able to connect with each other um, and really honour them as the partner that's that's changing them. Holly and I have brought out stuff in ourselves we don't like and it's not that they, they don't, like Holly doesn't bring out in me the worst of me wanting to do it. But it's, part of it. it's, how, it's how we both handle it and go, okay, well, how do we, how do we in this moment still be angry, still be upset, but continue to love? And, you know, it's part of the dance. It's part of the dance, yeah. right? Like being yeah. able to navigate that, to me, that's, that's the key element. Uh, hmm. So, yeah, that when you talked about that, it just felt very clear. So if that's your inclination, I would say uh, from what I felt through my body, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I ran mentor mentoring program. I've run different mentoring programs for the last 15 years. The last, the one that we just finished last weekend actually was a private mentoring program. It was a year program and it was a, a hefty fee to be part of it. Um, and so that means it's devoted to change. My proudest things in there is taking the matriarchal um Well, it's the matriarchal to realise, but the patriarchal, so that the man that has fallen into that dominant, um, egotistical, decision-making, um, be-my-wife type person, which, you know, for people my age or a little bit older is the basic makeup of them, and getting them to a realisation that their wife is important, that their wife is number one. And in that, in that last group, we had two incredibly major changes in two men that, that tick my box, that make a difference to um, who they are. Now, I ran it as a property development program, and um, one of those men came up with the catchphrase is, I came for the develop, I came for the property, but I stayed for the development, which was development on him to become yeah. a better person. Love that. And, and like me, realises that personal development is not a, um, I've done it, I've got there. It's a continual life thing for me now. 100%. Love that. Love that. Um, and what I know about business is when you bring the energy of your partner into the business, then everything changes. So to me, it's not not a surprise at all to hear that you now have this beautiful connection that's now completely changed the direction of the business. It's allowed you to step out of the things that aren't important and, and come to this place of crossroads and, and what I would say is expansion. So, uh, yeah, massive power to you, and That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it's been awesome. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, Ian? Whichever of these elements they want to, uh, they want to dive into. 
Yep, you can go to dwarfpoledancing.com. <laughs> Politically incorrect. Um, Invida, um, I-N-V-I-D-A, invida.com.au. So Invida, um, so Vida is life in Spanish. So we're bringing life back into the housing market. We're giving life back to the people that live in it. We're giving life back to the owners of those properties because they've got some cash flow. But more importantly, we're giving life back to the community and the government because we're providing housing at no cost to community, but it's creating a community outcome. So good. Uh, and it drawn to the start of this conversation when you were given life back to you by actually opening up. Um, man, what a beautiful journey. Thank you, Ian, for sharing so openly. It was fantastic and plenty of laughs too. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mr. Hawkins. You are welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com you can also stay connected with me by joining the grief code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code and remember so that i can help even more people to heal please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform